Welcome to the Live Courageously podcast show. I'm your host, John Duffy, and this is episode four of the Live, Courageous, Live Courageously podcast show of 2024 and the 63rd episode since I started the show about two years ago. Uh, Live Courageously has been the conscious theme of my life for the last three years since the beginning of the pandemic and an unconscious theme for most of my life. Courage is resistance to fear, mastery of fear, not absence of fear. There's something contagious about someone who is courageous. And today's show is with a courageous guest who I met last month in Phoenix at AmFest event. And after talking a bit, it turned out we had another courageous friend in common who uh, we'll, I'll have a show with in two weeks and I'll share more later. But let's meet today's courageous guest, David Serper. David is a businessman, a U.S. Marine Corps combat veteran, an author of the book Common Sense for California, a guide to the new revolution available on Amazon. He's a lifelong Californian working to save his home state and our country by running for Congress in California's 39th congressional district in Riverside. He wants to unite people around common sense like the title of his book and in David's own words, some statements that he's made uh, include the following. We're not taking this district back. We're moving this district forward to a better way of doing politics. We've killed careers and given people two part-time jobs and a side hustle. You have to work through your golden years in order to live in the golden state. And these are just some comments of his uh, in his campaign. Our children's schools are suffering. We have homeless under every bridge in Riverside County. We have 4,000 children in the Riverside County foster system every year. Our problems are here. If we're going to be the shining city on a hill that the city should be able to shine, regardless of what is happening to the rest of the world, well into the future. So despite what you read in the news, David believes America's best days are still ahead of us. With all that, I'd like to welcome David to the show, uh, Live Courageously. Thank you, David, for being my guest, and it's been a pleasure and honor to have met you uh, in Phoenix. My brother, it's an honor to have met you. I'm grateful to join you here on Live Courageously. Thank you for having me on. Well, you know, I always ask people, and, and I, I shared how we met, I always ask people, what does live courageously mean to them? You clearly had a courageous life of service, both in the military and in civilian life. But what does that term mean to you, to live courageously? You know, I think that living courageously sometimes is just taking one step at a time. It's always taking one step at a time. Because, you know, no matter what we can do, we, sometimes we think, oh, I, we can't handle that. Or I can't do this, or I can't do that. You can always handle what's next. And so I think that whether that is a firefight, whether you are running for office, whether you are a single mom, you know, doing the best that you can by your kids or a dad going to a second job, uh, sometimes it requires just getting up and putting your freaking feet in your damn pants and getting saddled up and ready to go for the day because it's not getting easy out here for Americans. It's getting a lot harder to get by. And so I think that we're all doing the best that we can to live courageously. Well, you, you know, you've been a Californian all your life. You were born here. You grew up here. Um, give the audience a little bit of a backstory of, you know, what took you from when you grew up in California to why you chose to join the U.S. Marine Corps, your service in the U.S. Marine Corps, and give us that little piece of your history that leads us into uh, uh, the later part of your life. Sure. I was born in, uh, in Santa Clara. My grandpa worked for IBM. Um, out in San Jose in the Almaden Valley. And uh, I lived all over Northern California, uh, the Bay Area, Fresno, um, Sacramento, Roseville, Placerville, El Dorado County. 
And, um, and my parents had kind of a tumultuous relationship like a lot of parents do. And I was in and out and around shelters and I lived in section eight housing. And I saw a lot of the other side of what it means to grow up in America. And there's a lot of opportunities. There were a lot of opportunities when we were growing up and they're becoming less and less opportunities. That's what I want to really try to focus on. And, uh, so I always wanted to get out to LA. I grew up with the dream of, you know, doing stage and, and film and television. And that's really what I did in high school. And we got that in common. Uh, my mom got me theater when I was I think nine years old, 10 years old. And then I moved down to Southern California, um, did theater and whatnot and wrote for stage. And then I moved to LA and eventually I uh, joined my sister at a Memorial Day celebration. She had been to Iraq. She's a combat veteran. And I was 23 years old. I was a Screen Actors Guild member. I had written and directed a, a film. It was a big deal. You would have heard of it. <laughs> but it wasn't a great deal. Great trailer. But um, and, uh, so I was up there and I was just thinking, you know, gosh, these guys have been on three and four combat deployments. I've got an able body. I've got an able mind. You know, I really didn't think that this war was going to be dragging on the way that it did. And, uh, and it did. It did drag on. And so I, I enlisted in the infantry. I ended up becoming a machine gunner with uh, 1st Battalion, 1st Marines in uh, Camp Pendleton, California. Um, that's what moved me out here to the Inland Empire into the Temecula Valley and deployed to Afghanistan in 2012 um, and got out of the Marine Corps, jumped into real estate and built my business from there. And uh, we could talk more about that if you want to talk more about that. But that's the beginning part of the story. Well, yeah, I definitely will get to the second part, but, but with that too, I mean, you know, it, rather unique, you know, what you're telling me, I'm, you know, going from, it's unusual going nowadays, going from a Screen Actors Guild actor to have joined the Marine Corps and then serve in Afghanistan. And I know, you know, for myself, my uh, link to some of this was I ended up doing some training videos for the U.S. Marine Corps down in Camp Pendleton. And that opened up a door because I met the best uh, young people I'd ever met in my life and the best leaders. And I just felt the Marine Corps was just a, a, a you know, some, their, their level of service was beyond what I had ever seen. And that opened up me to want to help and give back to veterans because I saw what they were doing. And you obviously, you know, as a young person, instead of going fully in the Hollywood dream, you went into the Marine Corps and you served uh, and you served our country, uh, you know, and risked your life over there. You know, when I enlisted, I had spoken to a, a Marine Corps recruiter and he said, hey, listen, when in the infantry, he goes, uh, you're really, you're busy, you're off for the day, you know, at like two, three o'clock when you're, when you're, when you're and he goes, well, then you deploy, you deploy for three, four, five months and then, you know, you come back and, you know, you get a lot of off time and I was thinking, oh, well, that'll be great if I get stationed in Southern California, I'll go back and I'll do sketch comedy and stand up and whatnot on my nights and weekends. <laughs> So he, and, uh, sold you, he sold you a, a, a nice story. I was really excited about, you know, serving and whatnot. And I, I would have done it anyway. But I was like, you know, I can continue making independent films while I'm in the Marine Corps. <laughs> yeah, it didn't turn out that easy, did it? <laughs> no, it's not. And then, uh, you know, of course, life happened while you're, you know, while I was in the Marine Corps. And you know, I had kids and, you know, life changed a bit. And honestly, the desire for me to get out to L.A., diminished quite a bit and uh i loved it while i was there but i'm really i'm an experienced person i had the experience i was ready to move on and you know try that next chapter that next chapter was being a marine and then you know it was real estate 
Well, you know, having your experience living all over California and like you said, kind of coming from a family that had its challenges and, and, you know, living in some of the places you lived, it gave you a certain kind of background. And then when you came out of the Marine Corps, what got you to become an entrepreneur, to get into real estate, to begin to pursue business uh, as opposed to maybe just getting a job, but going down that path of entrepreneurship? You know, growing up, I watched both of my parents work very hard. You know, my dad, I remember watching my dad hitchhike in the snow, carrying his tools as a carpenter and just thinking, my God, this guy has incredible work ethic. And then working on a construction site with him later. And my dad's one of the few people who could work me under the table. And I'm a hardworking guy. And then my mom, you know, working two, three jobs and whatnot. And so I, I saw what it was like to work a job and I wanted an opportunity to try to own something, build a business like my dad has done now. My dad runs a, a, a race company called Choice California Trail Runs. Um, and it's a great company. He's got a couple hundred people that show up for his, his events. But I wanted to build something. And my business mentor was my father-in-law at the time, uh, a man named Scott Meeker. And he told me, hey, you should get into real estate. You've got a great personality. You're good with people. You're great with, you know, numbers and, you know, calculating things and figuring things out. And he says, it's basically sales and it's service. And you're good with that anyway. And um, I had my ankle reconstructed and fused in the Marine Corps. So I, you know, I needed to do something different. I couldn't really depend on my body. And so I jumped into real estate. I made over $30,000 in my second month in real estate, which is more than I made the year prior getting shot at in Afghanistan. And uh, in that first year, I made a, about $120,000, started a team, you know, 100% of the people that stuck it out with my team were making over $100,000 a year. And, um, you know, it was wonderful and it was beautiful, but I kept just building and building and building because that's what the world around you encourages you to do. And it's not something that caused me a lot of joy. In fact, it was burning me out. It was too much. And eventually, eventually all of that trauma from war, from a violent childhood, from, you know, a business world that will eat you alive, uh, put me to a point to where I couldn't take it anymore with business. And I actually, I checked myself into uh, the VA mental facility in February of 2018. And, uh, you know, to start my post-traumatic growth journey. Um. Let's take that for a minute, your post-traumatic growth journey. And, and I, I love that term because um, we obviously we all know about post-traumatic stress, which is something that people experience in war situations as well as in other situations of, of um, in life. But to kind of reframe something and take it, to take that stress that you were under, that trauma that you were under in the military in life, and then kind of reframe it into post-traumatic -tra growth takes you, uh, uh, you know, in, on a different path. Take a, a minute or two, if you don't mind, and just share that with people, because I think that's a powerful message for people to hear. Sure, we focus a lot on PTSD. The idea that we have been traumatized, and that of course is obvious. You know, you have this trauma that you have to deal with, but once you deal with that trauma, and you unpack those skeletons in your closet, and you take a good long look at your shadow, you look at yourself in the mirror, you start realizing, Geez, not only did I go through this trauma, but I'm a better man or woman, if you're a woman, than went through the trauma because of it. I know who I am under fire. I know how I respond to when the bullets start firing down range. And I'm proud of who I am. 
And I'm proud of what I was able to accomplish. And so when you take this 1.7 million veterans in the state of California, which is the largest population of veterans anywhere in the country, and you start telling them, hey, listen, you're not broken. You're not busted. In fact, you are better than you have ever been because of the fact that you went through that. Now you are designed to fight the system that you know exists, that sent you off to fight for some freaking bull crap. And, uh, and this is come from every freaking generation, the Vietnam generation, the freaking, you know, Afghanistan, Iraq, you know, we, a lot of people died for some bull crap. And, uh, and we're very frustrated at this point. We're looking at the department of defense and that's what they don't want us to do. They don't want us to look at the system. You know, Hey, we, I've looked inward. I know who I am. I know who, what my demons are, but now I'm looking at the, the, the country, Right. So you take that oath of enlistment, you say, I'm willing to fight against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And then you realize, holy smokes, we got more enemies in this country than we do on the other side of the world. These people are not my enemies. My enemies are the people that have hijacked my country and have hijacked my republic. Well, we're going to get to that. And we're going to get to your run. Um, but just once again, just a little bit, another minute, I just want to say, you know, like you said, for all the veterans in California, but also throughout the country, you know, the ones who have, and not everybody has experienced uh, uh, PTS, but a lot have, and it depends on, you know, what your experience has been. But to be willing to take that journey, to go through that and realize that you can turn that, that stress, that uh, trauma into a growth process where you can recognize that you're not broken. You can take that and, and rebuild yourself to be stronger and to be able to accomplish more in life is important. It's a message that people need to hear and the organizations that help them do it are very vital too because it gives them the tools to say here, yeah, you've been through this, but this is what you can now do in the future. And, you know, let me speak to this really quick. This is not just about the combat community. This is a, you know, people experience PTSD from all walks of life. And in fact, a, a really beautiful person who, you know, we want to give roses while people are alive, right? While they're around to receive them. And, and she was part of my healing. She was instrumental. I went through the VA. I decided this is an ugly thing. I'm just going to go and isolate. Right. Um, I ended up going through uh, this area to you know get my brace. It's a long story, but $10,000 out of pocket. The VA wouldn't cover it. Running is a luxury. And I go up and I'm meeting with this doctor, Dr. Ryan Blanc, who designed this Ideo brace that helps me to run. And uh, he looks at me and he just says, you know, it was the first time anyone had taken their hands off of my feet and just looked at my eye, looked at me my, and looked at my eyes and said, are you okay? And I just started crying. I just started crying because, you know, not a lot of people look at the soul anymore. We don't look at the human being anymore. And he introduced me to this lady. God bless her. Her husband or her, uh, her son died of suicide. And once she got a hold of my phone number, she called me like an aggressive ex-girlfriend trying to get me out to this program called the PATH program out in Arizona, out in Boulder Crest. And there's the PATH program in Arizona. There's another PATH program. There's the Save a Warrior Foundation. There's the Mighty Oaks Warrior Foundation here in Southern California. And so there's a lot of different places where you can go where people will help you with that post-traumatic growth journey. But you have to be your best advocate. And you have to be willing to start that. You have to say, hey, listen, I do have a problem. I am stressed out. I'm tightly wound. I saw some stuff that, you know, at least I need to talk about. I need to sound out one time. And then I don't need to dwell on the war porn. I don't need to keep telling my story again and again and again because it's not serving me. And uh, and then get back into service. 
I, I mean, I just want uh, to echo that and, and I hope, hope that people just, you know, hear what you say because I just think, uh, you know, it's so strong what you just said. And once the thing is, you can admit the weakness, you can have someone hear it, someone un understand it, and then move forward and not keep repeating it. Because you, like you said, you use the word war porn, but any kind of stress porn or anything that just reliving it over and over and over and over again for a lifetime is not going to take you forward. It's going to keep you in that place. So Amen, my brother. Freaking, it's these narratives that we start telling ourselves that we re-victimize ourselves. And I, I can tell you, you know, finding out my 30s that I am autistic and that I am bipolar too was both a blessing and a curse because it was something that, you know, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm these things. But then when I started looking at the manual for my life and started looking at the guidebook for how my brain works and how my body works, I'm like, okay, I need to sleep regularly. I need to, you know, eat regularly. I need to take care of my body. And, uh, and so I, you know, I've, it's been part of my journey finding out these things and I'm grateful for the labels. A lot of people say, Oh, you know, that's a label. You should reject it. No, nah, man, you can call me whatever it is that you want to call me. If it's going to offer me some insight into my life. And then if you can take that and move forward, which is what you clearly did. So what, what real quick, and I want to keep, make sure we get, we're going to, there's a lot to cover today. Uh, Cause you got, you got a lot going on, but I also want to kind of just, what lessons would you say you would offer people both being a Marine and also the best lessons that come out of that for you and also out of being a, um, an entrepreneur and a real estate person? Because you said you had a group of people, they were all successful. Uh, you know, what are the lessons that come out of both of those experiences that you would share with people, the best lessons? That's a great question. Um, geez, that's a great question. So um, when I was in the Marine Corps, I was a PFC and they told us, hey, fill up all those sandbags over there. And I worked like my freaking hair's on fire because that's how I work. I freaking work hard. I learned it from my parents. My dad's a very hard worker. So I'm filling up my sandbags. And this guy says to me, he says, listen, whether you fill up 30 sandbags or I fill up three, we all get paid the same. And I said, yeah, but I'm not wired like that. That's just not how I'm wired. So I'm going to fill up my 30 sandbags, right? And then so, you know, but there are times in your life where it gets difficult to fill up your sandbags. Maybe this guy was struggling that day. Maybe mentally he was struggling. Maybe physically he was hurting, whatever it was. And so the thing is, we all have our cross to carry. We all have our burden. And um, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it was Simon. Was it Simon that, that came and carried the cross for Jesus? Or was it Peter? Uh, I think I'm it was Simon. Sure. Yeah, it might have been Simon. I'm not positive right now, but, you know, I'm being a, a bad steward of the faith here. But, you know, the, 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 when it, we don't always, Jesus couldn't carry his cross for a brief period of time. And a stranger came along and he was instructed to carry the cross so that he didn't die on his way to be nailed to the cross. And sometimes we can't carry our own cross. Sometimes we struggle a little bit. And so whether that's an entrepreneurship, whether that's in your household, you know, it's okay to say, you know, I'm struggling a little bit carrying it. I'm struggling to get by. But at the end of the day, we all have that ability to just put that one foot and step of an, uh, the other to continue to live courageously. You know, we, we've all got our burdens, but you know, uh, it's about how we carry them that ultimately ends up leaving a legacy for our children. 
Well, I love both of what you said, and just for people to hear it, is that you're right. Sometimes we need somebody to, to take that load off us, of us for a moment or be there for us. We all need that because, you know, sometimes we act like we're Superman or we're, we're invulnerable, and, you know, that's the image we have to portray. But we all have moments of weakness, and that's part of being human, right? Is that we that's have right. Moments of weakness. And for asking somebody to help you doesn't make you weaker. It makes you stronger. And then you come out of that stronger and you take that one step again. So all of what you just said, I just think is, you know, is real powerful for people to really hear. Part of my weakness in my narrative that I tell myself is, oh, you know, my business ended up falling apart because I got eaten alive by everybody around me. But <clears throat> the truth is I became a leader that wasn't worth following. People got to a point that were like, this Titanic is going down and I don't want to go down on it. And I feel like, you know, that's how I had to look inward and I had to really be like, oh my gosh, over the course of years and be like, man, I really, I was manic. I was going through an autistic meltdown, autistic burnout. Um, and, you know, I was dangerous, you know, for a lot of people. And this is a part about me that, man, I love the danger. I love a good fist fight. I love the, I love the, the aspect of getting into a little bit of trouble, picking a fight. And not everybody has the same palette for risk that I have. And, uh, but that doesn't mean that they were traitors. That doesn't mean that they weren't right or die or that they weren't good people. It just means that I was no longer in a position to where they could continue to follow me. And I feel like that's where America is right now. America's at a place to where, you know, like, we, you know, um, people are no longer patriotic. They're no longer, you know, flag waving. They don't love this country or whatnot. It's like, yeah, well, a lot of people are seeing the writing on the wall. We, we see the Titanic going down. We see somebody who's lost their damn mind holding on to the, you know, the, going down with the ship. And um, a lot of these young people, um, they feel like they've been sold out by their country. They've been sold, sold out by their countrymen. And so they don't feel like there's a reason for them to show up and fight. I hear you. Well, let's pivot on that thing. Cause so you, you know, we went through the Marine experience, you went through your entrepreneur and then you wrote a book and you got involved in, in, and what you are uh, beginning on this journey today of running for Congress. Your book you wrote right up here is on uh, common sense for California. Um, what got you to write that book? When did you write it? And, and tell us a little bit about uh, what that is and, and why that um, you were moved to uh, uh, share that in that, in that form. So I wrote a book originally called The Machine Gunner's Guide to Real Estate, Accuracy by Volume. And it was, you know, a very long book that I wrote in three weeks. I was very manic at the time and I just wanted to get it all out in the world. And uh, I wasn't totally sure that I didn't want to kill myself is the truth of that. I didn't want to self-eliminate. And, um, and so I wanted to just sort of get all the wisdom that I had out in my head out in the world. And, um, and then uh, things settled down a little bit. I ended up writing a book called All the World's a Stage, Unmasking Asperger's Syndrome. Um, you're trying to shed some light on what it looks like being undiagnosed, autistic as a child, as an adult, et cetera, and so forth. And then I wrote a book called Zen Business, an Eastern approach to the Western business climate about how all of life is this spiritual practice. Chapter 10 focused specifically on Christianity. And then after writing all of these, I wrote the book that I didn't really want to write, which is Common Sense for California, a Guide to the New Revolution, because you know, like a lot of people, I didn't really want to get involved. You know, I was experiencing this mental and spiritual breakdown, which led to a mental and spiritual breakthrough. I started seeing a lot of what was uh, the lies that I'd been fed about our country that I wanted to write. I started feeling very helpless about how to make uh, an impact. And so I started outlining this book called Common Sense to California, Guide to the New Revolution. And then the COVID-19 lockdown started. 
And so day one of the COVID-19 lockdown, I started writing the book. I put pen to paper and it took me about a year and a half or so to write and get the book out to the world. But I wrote the whole thing during the COVID-19 lockdown. And so in a way that gave you the, the, the time and the gift to be able to focus on doing that book. Correct. And what I was thinking is it would be a spark for revolution, maybe 10 years, 12 years, 15 years down the road, not thinking that situations would change on the ground so much so that it's not about the spark for revolution. It's about the conditions being right. And right now in this country, the, the conditions are right for a revolution. But I want it to be this new revolution, this idea that, you know, we're here to create a better world and to be dedicated to creating a better world beyond our hearts beating in it. And I want to create that better world for our children. I don't want a violent revolution. You know, I want to see through this national revival that is going through right now, what it means to be an American, and this spiritual revival that's going through right now. Because a lot of people are feeling disconnected from their country. They're feeling disconnected from themselves spiritually. And I feel like we're seeing this revolution happening right now and they're getting involved in this administrative and bureaucratic revolution, and they want to start getting control of their country. And that comes back to, you know, revolution being local and acting local. I, I mean, and you touch on a bunch of uh, fascinating points because people are alienated from so much, and there's a lot of reasons for that alienation, obviously. Um, they, you know, social media is a good part of the alienation. What they're taught in school or not taught in school is a good part of the alienation. There's so many reasons that people have lost, um, lost direction, lost purpose, lost mission. Because, you know, in the Marine Corps, you have a purpose and mission, you know, which is something that's so powerful. And in life, one of the things that uh, some people have, which makes life a lot better for them, is a purpose and mission. But not a lot of people have anymore. And so... If you don't have a reason, then what's it all about? And, and if you're just buying into what's being given at and you have no reason to make life better, and what you're saying is you want to make it better um, for people and you want to make it better for the next generation. That's what I'm hearing you say. And, yeah. and I think that's an important point because right now uh, people are kind of more lost probably than, than at least in my lifetime as well. You know, and people are lost everywhere. You know, we talk about, you know, uh, draining the swamp. You know, just to go and bring this home, uh, you know, draining the swamp. It's not a D.C. thing. It's not a Sacramento thing. It is a right here in your backyard, your local Republican Party. And, you know, you talk about purpose and mission. Yeah, I want to activate veterans in this fight. But the biggest problem with our local Republican Party is they have no purpose. They have no mission. They have no common enemy. And I would could say that on a state level. You could probably say that on a countrywide level, you know, when you lack a purpose, when you don't have a mission, you start infighting and you fight leadership, you fight each other. And that's where we're at right now is, is uh, you know, instead of offering a viable alternative party platform and starting to convert Republicans and potentially turn the state red, we're losing it because we're lost in the sauce because we don't stand for anything. And, you know, tell us, look, I'm going to put up a little bit of, of uh, this is um... Just some of the points, you know, uh, from your book and also from your campaign, a good investment yields, dividends, audit government spending on all level, all different points. So you have a lot of different things. What, what, what are the things that we need to do? And we'll start locally, and I say locally, California. What does California <coughs> need to do? Because, you know, at one point this was an amazing state. Now people are leaving, you know, hundreds yep. of thousands of people are leaving. The economy is not what it used to be. We're in massive deficit. What does it take 
what do we need to focus on in California? And then we'll go, we'll go, uh, you know, nationwide. But what do we need to focus in California? So, and I think these things are interlocked. So let's, I think we could talk about both of them. And okay. because that would be my job in Congress, I think we could talk about these things simultaneously. You know, my job, of course, is to put America first, but it is to put California first. I'm a California first person. I've spent my whole life here. I've lived all over Northern California, all over Southern California, and I've got a really good pulse on this state. And I can tell you, common sense is water, energy, defense, healthcare, education. And we'll go through these kind of one at a time. Water is the cornerstone of every society. It's every society either is, you know, fails or succeeds by its ability to provide fresh water for its citizenship. And you and I have both watched California dry up over the last 20, 30 years by design as our farms have been denied water. Um, we have an 800 mile coastline for a fraction of what we sent to Ukraine a fraction of what we spend on war annually, we could have lined the coast with desalination plants. And a desalination plant costs about $2 billion to make. And a nuclear facility costs about $5 billion to make. And that's my next point, energy. But uh, we could have lined the coast with desalination plants, funneled fresh water inland through aqueducts. And uh, But instead of doing that, we continue to spend money on the problem while not fixing it. In 2014, we voted for water infrastructure. We voted for $7.5 billion in water infrastructure, and we didn't get it. And that's because they want to privatize our water. They want to deny our farmers the right to exist. We've watched the signs food grows for where water flows in the last 20, 30 years while these farms have dried up. Um, so water, energy. Water brings down the cost of food. Energy also brings down the cost of food and the cost of everything else. We are an oil-rich state in an oil-rich country, acting like we are not. Um, we have deep uh, reserves in lithium, in uranium. We have 500 trillion cubic feet of natural gas, but they want to capitalize on scarcity. And it's hard to capitalize on scarcity when you have so much abundance. And so instead of capitalizing on scarcity, I want to bank on abundance. I want to blow the roof off of this economy and finally build a floor in the economy so that, you know, we get we start drilling. But then we also tap into uranium so that we can have a nuclear future. Right now in California, we're decommissioning nuclear facilities, which is asinine. Um, and destroying our grid, which is also something that we are doing on purpose. It's all by design. And so we've got the highest cost of oil, you know, the the worst roads, the worst taxes. And so if we could focus on water and energy, right? Um, and you're a military guy, John? Uh, a civilian supporter. My dad was in the Army. Okay, Patriot. Right on. Okay. Uh, so at the end of the day, my brother freaking every submarine, every uh, nuclear or every uh, naval vessel runs on nuclear power and it runs on desalinized water. Why can we not do that in California? And it's because they want to control us by the amount of money that they can charge us for water and energy. And then you get into defense. You, know, you don't have a country if you can't defend it. That's common sense. And so we need to protect our border at the border. Right now, the Department of Defense has failed its sixth consecutive audit. They're unable to account for 61% of $3.5 trillion in weapons and assets throughout the globe. And we give them $887 billion every year, 70% of which goes directly to private military contractors. So the Department of Defense has become a big money laundering organization instead of becoming the greatest force for good in the world and the greatest force for capitalism and for democracy and 
uh, whatnot. So defense, healthcare, you know, I want to see, you know, President Trump's original promise to repeal and replace Obamacare. Obamacare was a failed insurance mandate. We should be providing healthcare. We pay more than any other developed nation in the world for healthcare and we aren't covered. And uh, we have 650,000 medical bankruptcies every year due to medical debt. We have over 65% of our medical or of our bankruptcies in this country are due to unpaid medical debt. And we can always afford to kill people, but we can't afford to heal people. It just doesn't make sense. So, you know, Nancy Pelosi had an opportunity to take it to a vote um, on the House and introduce Medicare for all. She didn't do it. In California, they would have had votes to pass it. But Governor Newsom actually pulled the universal health care bill for Californians. And then a few short years later, introduced health care for all illegal immigrants. And then uh, the, my last stance is on education. You know, I believe that we need to properly educate our children K through 12, give them uh, an opportunity to have access to licensing certificate um, and apprenticeship programs so that they have an opportunity to start their lives after high school. And then I want to reinvest and reimagine public universities so that we have an ability to have more doctors, more nurses, more engineers, uh, more teachers, and then not burden them with debt so that they can become homeowners and taxpayers. And, uh, you know, the average homeowner isn't 49 years old and only 16% of people can afford to buy houses. So our society would benefit from an educated youth. And so these are this is all common sense as far as I'm concerned. Water, energy, defense, healthcare, education. Well, I mean, you got a very um, just listening to you describe it all. You have a very thorough, forward-looking plan, you know, to grow things, to inspire people, to create more opportunity, more education, more advancement, more improvement on every level of those, uh, you know, four or five areas that you're mentioning. And I think that's the kind of uh, thing that I think you know, we kind of need to get back to is that kind of politicians who inspire us to not spend money and not fix a problem, but get results. Because I mean, that's the, uh, you know, the other side of it is, you know, if you ask, I grew up in the ghetto, I grew up in, in the South Bronx in New York in poverty. And, you know, you know, you look at 50 years later and billions of dollars spent in all kinds of poverty programs, everything that the government spends, and has it improved? No, it's gotten worse. So you say, you know, how does a government get away with spending all this money and getting worse results than if they didn't spend the money? I mean, if they didn't spend anything, the results would have been at least less than that. So they, you know, all this money is spent and they think that that's their story. Hey, well, we spend all this money. Yeah, but you get no results or you get bad that's results. Right. You, you know, homelessness in LA, has it gone down or has it increased? Well, it's increased. You spent all this millions of dollars. And like you say, with the defense thing, all it goes to cronies. All of it goes to people, uh, friends of the politicians. But what does it do for the people? Does it change the reality on the ground? No, it doesn't. And I think yeah, that's you know, you know, but, a lot of what you're saying in your thing. So I, 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 I definitely hear what you're saying. So first off, you know, I don't know if you heard this, but Governor Newsom introduced a 10-year plan like 12 years ago to end homelessness. He did it, right? Yeah. Didn't he, oh, he, didn't did he do it. that? <laughs> he did it. <laughs> so, you know, I think he, he did it one day in San Francisco when the president of China came. That was his, that was his <laughs> yeah, when Xi Jinping showed up. 
Yeah, that was his. That was the only day he's ever got rid of homelessness. In, in, but he uh, did it in a day. He did it in a couple of days. It no shows kidding. that the, the the ability is there, but the will is not there. They want to keep the threat of homelessness at us. And for the first time in American history, the number one issue in California for those facing homelessness is affordability is affordability. And so when I look at government, the reason why people don't want to give government any money to do anything is because there's no accountability in government. So the, the answer is always more money. You know, oh, bullet train, more money. But what were the results? Oh, uh, uh, you know, water infrastructure of $14.5 billion. Okay, but what were the results? And so we need to perform a healthy audit of government. And you don't have to be a combat vet to know that you don't pump blood into a corpse in order to make it live. And that's what we're doing right now in California. We took a $98 billion surplus and we made it a $68 billion deficit in less than two years. That's Governor Newsom. And so what I want to do is I want to start focusing on results so that it isn't falling on our local churches and whatnot to solve homelessness and cure addicts when the government should be doing their freaking job. And so, you know, perfect example. We talk about, you know, running for office, me running for office for the first time. Everybody wanted to say, oh, how much equity do you have in your house? These political consultants that I met with. Hundred thousand, hundred fifty thousand dollars. You know, uh, just to get you started. That's how much we're gonna we're gonna charge you. You know, five thousand dollars a month. You know, fifty thousand dollar win bonus. We're gonna charge you an overage off of all your campaign gear. And I said, what do you need one hundred fifty thousand dollars for? And they said, well, you need to win in the primary. Okay, well, there's more than one way to skin a cat, right? So you know, we ended up clearing the primary last time. There were six Republicans running in this race. Now there's only one Republican running in the race. And we were able to do that for freaking 3,500 bucks. And so, you know, what are the results? Where's the proof in the pudding? What can you do with less? And until government gets to a point to where there are more people in government that understand business so that they are better legislators for business. If we have more people that understand violence so that they're better at you know, potentially not legislating so much violence to other people. But the problem is, is we don't have revolutionaries. We don't have patriots. You know, we don't have radicals that are, uh, you know, in government. In fact, we look down on those things. Now we have a bunch of lukewarm, you know, uh, clowns that are going around clogging the intellectual toilets uh, of the, the freaking House of Legislators and, you know, in the Senate. And um, they're getting paid to continue to perpetuate a system of violence and a perpetuate, uh, perpetuate a system which has divided us as a nation and which has conquered the American people and colonized us. And we don't even realize that we've been conquered and colonized. Well, I think like you said, you, you know, trying to uh, judge by results and hold people to results. I mean, that's a crucial thing that we don't do. And, and that's true of both parties. I mean, both parties need to get held to the, the thing. If you're not doing it, then you, you, know, you should not be there. You know, I interviewed a, a police officer who worked in Skid Row for 25 years, great guy, and he's still working down on Skid Row. And he said, it's a homeless industrial complex. He mm -hmm. said, they're making money off of increasing homelessness, not doing away with homelessness. So no matter what they tell you, you judge it by the results. And I think his term of homeless industrial complex is a powerful term, but it's true of a lot of other areas. It's like, what if you're not getting the result who, whatever party you're in, you need to be held to that. And that's how the standard of whether you should be in office or not, whether you should be a leader or not, if you're not getting the results, 
then why not? Why not? We have all these industrial complexes at this time, and uh, we're really going to war with the American people, unfortunately. They're controlling our food. They're controlling our water. We have this homelessness industrial complex. We have a nonprofit industrial complex. Uh, you know, we've got a you know military industrial complex. You know, they, we had the war on drugs. You know, we're spending all this money on education. It's like, yeah, but what are the results? And, you know, one of the first people that really pointed to this that I think is just an American patriot is uh, Smedley Butler. You know, he wrote the book, War is a Racket. It's a short book, very short read. I think you can have it read to you on YouTube in less than an hour, maybe 30 minutes. And uh, he talks about how war is a racket. Before anyone was calling it a military industrial complex, and I think maybe 1932, 1939, uh, Smedley Butler released the book, War is a Racket. And he was talking about how People get paid, how, many, how much the contractors get paid with every set of boots, with every rifle, with every pack of cigarettes. And then um, he went around speaking throughout America. And what they ended up doing was they tried to use Smedley Butler, the most decorated Marine of all time um, at that time. Um, they tried to use him to throw a coup in America called the business coup. Have you ever heard of this? No, I have not. So... Um, you know, Bush Sr., his father was was uh, involved in this, uh, you know, is a lot of the big names, the press, you know, the, the Bushes and the DuPonts and whatnot. They wanted to overthrow, I believe it was FDR at the time, who, uh, you know, of course, got elected four, four times. And they wanted to create a militaristic nationalist uh, government. And it, nobody knows about it. But, yes, yeah, it's, it's called the, the business coup. And the reason why it didn't happen was Smedley Butler was the one that ultimately ended up blowing the whistle. Interesting. And now that you mentioned, I think I vaguely had heard of it, but I'll take another look at that. But let me pivot back because we got a little bit more time and I want to get into your run. So you made a decision to run for Congress. Like you said, you had to get through the primaries and then from there into the election. Um, what motivated you to do that? And tell us a little bit about that journey. Obviously, you've gotten support. You're out in Riverside. You're running. Tell us a little bit about your campaign. Um, you know, I'll throw up some pictures. I know you've been around speaking uh, at different events. Uh, let me just throw up a couple pictures of you. You know, speaking at different events as you've been campaigning. Um, whoops, that's a previous one. There you go. Um, and so you've done a bunch of campaigning. So tell us about that. You know, what got, what got you into it? And where where does your campaign stand at the moment? So I started writing that book, Common Sense for California, Guide to the New Revolution, not with the intent of running for office. I wanted to give other people the ability, the, you know, to understand what's going on in California on these 20 unique issues and then send them, you know, to go and do the work. You know what I mean? I didn't really want to be the one to do it. But the more that I watched in the election cycles, uh, I started realizing that uh, that no one's coming around to save us. And if I want to leave a better country for my children, that's on me. I'm responsible for that. Everybody wants to say, you know, oh, you know, I'm going to raise my kids and I'm going to do this and whatnot. And then, you know, maybe I'll run for office later. It's like, no, man, if it is a sacrifice, if it is service, give the best years of your life to your country. And so, you know, the demons that you don't fight, you pass along to your children. And I'm afraid that the demons that we don't fight, we've been doing it for so long that we are passed along so many demons to our children that I'm not sure that they're going to be capable of fighting those demons. And so, you know, I loaded up my children. We took a trip uh, in an RV to kind of see California. And ultimately what ended up happening was, you know, just about every city that we drove into, just about every bridge that we drove under, there were human beings that were 
living under those bridges. And my kids are looking at me like, hey, dad, can we give them food? Dad, can we give them money? Because it's just out of the mouth of babes, right? And, you know, I can't continue to make five, $600,000 a year while the world falls apart. You know, I'm not going to, I can't, you know, hoard a bunch of money. And then, you know, maybe, maybe I'm lucky. Maybe I'm very lucky. And I work my tail off for the next 30 years. And then I could give each one of my kids a house and a million dollars in a broken state, in a broken country. And so I feel like there's just a lot of people like me that are stepping up to run for office. I'm not the only one. A lot of people are stepping up to run for office that just can't take this bull crap anymore. And uh, when those people start getting involved, it's going to be dangerous for the system. Well, I know I'm, when I met you at uh, AmFest in uh, Phoenix, it, here you are with uh, being interviewed with uh, two other veterans who are also running uh, military vets for office as well. So like you said, people are stepping up uh, throughout the, uh, different states, different um, parts of the U.S. to try and, you know, because there's all ways to serve. And obviously you served in the military, but then this is another way, to, a public service that people are stepping up to be able to say, how can we improve things and not accept that they're always going to be this or worse because they're not going to get better on their own. They're just going to get worse if nobody if nobody steps in and does anything. It just doesn't improve itself. So who's going to step up and be those people who are going to be the light in the middle of the darkness? And that's what you're doing. That's what you're doing. Thank that's what you. we're doing together, right? Everybody's got a, a fight to pick in their own way. Everyone's got to be a part of that body, right? The hands and feet. And, uh, and so no matter what it is that you're doing, no matter how it is that you're serving, you might not be somebody who's going to get up in front of people and give speeches or run for office, but you can share a social media post. Uh, you could, you know, you might not be someone to start a podcast or create a documentary film, but, you know, you could do something. Maybe you could design a flyer. Maybe you could put out some signs. Maybe you could knock some doors. Maybe you could donate 20 bucks. And so, you know, money isn't the most important thing when it comes to, to running a, um, for office, but it's certainly right up there with oxygen, right? And so, you know, we did a lot for 3,500 bucks, but now we're in a point to where we, we do want to win this election. We're going to win in March, but I want to win in November too. And uh, and we're going to win. It's going to happen. Even though we are severely outnumbered, it's a plus 24 Dem district. But you know what? I look at it, I'm like, I'm not surrounded. These are my people. I don't care if they're Democrats or Republicans or Libertarians or Socialists or whether or not, you know, they've got an American flag shirt on or they got blue hair. It doesn't matter. These are my people. These are my neighbors and they're not my enemies. These are these are these are the people that I want to build this country with, that I want to share this country with. And the second that we get together on that unity message, it's going to be a beautiful thing for all of us. Yeah, I want to I just want you to go a little bit deeper on that, because I think that's pretty pretty powerful because at the moment, you know, we're in a time where more so, and, and you know it as running for office, more so than ever in our lifetimes, we've been divided in so many ways by certain, you know, influences and, and people, whether it's the media or uh, the elites, and, and to be able to create that kind of division where what you're saying is, you know, at the end of the day, and I think that's powerful, it's like whether somebody is a Democrat or they're a Libertarian or they're a Republican or conservative or whatever they are. Um, they're your neighbors, they're your friends. And rather than trying to get them turned into your enemy, which is what is being done to us, the question is no, reject that 
find a way to see what we got in common and realize that we can work together even though we don't have to agree on everything. We don't have to have the same perspective on everything, but we can still respect each other and try and create a better community, a better neighborhood, a better state, a better city. Why not do that? Why shouldn't we do that? Why, why would be the reason not to do that? The truth is, is us populists, we agree, whether you are on the left or the right, on 85 to 90% of things. 85 to 90%. And that's a foundation. That's common ground that we could stand on. And so when I'm creating my, my platform, I'm like, hey, listen, where can we build together? Let's take it from there. Where can we work together to do good? And so I was on, a, you know, the PBT podcast, the Point Blank Truth podcast last night, and uh, they kept saying the elites as well. And I told them, I said, listen, they, these guys are not elites. They are oligarchs. You know, what are they elite at? They're elite at hoarding wealth and hoarding resources and making everything about them and showing up all the time on our on our televisions and our and our phones you know these people they are oligarchs and throughout history we have cut their heads off we have thrown tea into the harbor and started revolutions you know so these people they're narcissists and they're maniacs and they're psychopaths you know that want to control the food for the world that's a that's a psychopath that's a narcissist and so I'm not looking at these people like they're elites. I don't want to have a violent revolution. You know, what do you do the day after a violent revolution? I have no interest in that. I don't want to have Americans killing Americans on American soil. But I, they need to know that they are not elites. We do not look up to them. We do not respect them. They are not better than us. They are not the ones who fought and died for this country and were willing to die for this country, who built it with their freaking bare hands, whose ancestors freaking put their hands into the soil to freaking bring it about. These people, they have nothing in common with us. And so I look at it and I say, it's not about the left versus the right. When the left versus the right unite, Against the people at the top, we have a revolution. We have something we can work with. Well, I, I think, you know, th there's so much to, to uh, take uh, out of that. But at the end of the day, it, it's the average people, whether, it, you know, the poor and the working people, the middle class people who build the country, who build everything that we have. And, and you know, we saw it during COVID when, you know, we were told to close down and everything was locked down. But yet the working people had to still work at the grocery stores to bring food to everybody. And nobody cared about whether they were going to get sick. They were just caring about the, the, a certain group of people not getting sick. You know, and so they didn't care about those people, did they? You know, and at the end of the day, it tells you who they are and who they're not. But, you know, I think our, the message that you're saying and I, and I kind of resonate with is that, it, you know, I grew up in poverty. Um, I'm a son of two Irish immigrants who came. So I'm first generation American. And um, I just think the middle class, working class, and poor are the people who are the heart of America and are the heart of our cities and our states and our country. And so yeah, it's my, like, what are we doing for them at the end of the day? No matter what side you're on, what party you are, what are you doing for them? Those are the people that need to be uh, uh, taken care of. My real grandparents, my grandma died homeless. They, they, they both immigrated here from Ireland. My grandma died homeless. My grandpa served this country in the in the United States Marine Corps. I didn't know that before I had served in the Marine Corps. And these are the, some of the people that built this country. And unfortunately, we've become a very apathetic nation, you know, because a lot was gifted to us. But now we're getting uncomfortable. And so these essential workers who was declared essential 
they were really, you know, the people that were allowed to stay open because they were the service class. And so, um, you know, we've got the small business, small business, that's the number one employer in the country. And during COVID, about 40% of small businesses went out of business permanently. Wealth was consolidated. The lower and middle class lost about a billion dollars a day and a new billionaire was created every day. And these people are not with us. That's why they're creating these billionaire bunkers, right? You know, other countries like Switzerland, you know, you go to the Alps, they created bunkers for their people, you know, in the event that they were going to get invaded by Nazi Germany. All of their people, for all of their people to go. It's very telling that in America, we don't have bunkers for everyday people. We've got billionaires creating bunkers in the event that the next supply chain crisis happens and they don't have Uber Eats being delivered to their their door at night by someone that just got done working a nine to five job. I hear you. I hear you. Well, you know, obviously we're, we're facing uh, interesting times and, uh, you know, it's going to be an interesting year on so many levels. So just tell us... Um, and that's putting it mildly, but you know, tell us a little bit about uh, going forward. So you got a primary coming up in in when, and then uh, you know, how, and then we'll talk about how people can support you um, and how people can get more information uh, about your campaign. And I'll put up the the banner, of course, as we do that. But you go ahead and. Uh, tell so us we've got a primary about. coming up on March fifth, and I'm really grateful because the top two people go on to to face each other in November. And I'm already in the top two. So it's just me and Mark DeCano. So <clears throat> that's great. We're really excited about that. But I want to close that gap. You know, it's a plus 24 gap. My last, the last person who ran in this race lost by 17%. So we want to do our best to close that gap in March so that we can start to show that this is a year where the people aren't taking it anymore. So, you know, tonight I'm meeting with uh, the immediate um, all the movers and shakers of my campaign staff. I've got about 12 volunteers that I'm meeting with. And then starting next week, every week, we're going to start meeting um, and having that meeting because we're going to start door knocking and cold calling and doing all of the, the military-related stuff in the trenches on the ground. Um, so we're amping it up. We've got a couple of people that we met out in AmFest that are, are coming out to the house tonight to talk about that next phase. So uh, so that's really where we're at right now is, uh, is we're going to clear it in March. Um, and we need to overperform in March in order to get some uh, notice and some recognition because no one wants to donate their money to a loser. Nobody wants to, you know, uh, get a hold of a loser and say, hey, loser, here's 20 bucks. And, but I want to let people know that this is not a campaign where you can count us out. Um, this is a campaign where the Democrats have really overplayed their hands with Mark Takano. He's completely abandoned common sense. You know, he was made famous in that, you know, Matt Walsh's What is a Woman documentary when he couldn't define what a woman was. You know, he debated whether or not Mike Tyson should be able to, you know, fight other women if he were to identify as a woman. And he railed against a parent's bill of rights on the House floor. So he's just, he, in my opinion, overinflated his ego, put his foot in his mouth, and they, they've made him out to be the Goliath that he absolutely is so that, uh, you know, I can take him out in November. Well, uh, I, I wish you total luck with that. Tell, but tell me, is he also um, uh, uh, presently in Congress and also on the Veterans Committee and not a veteran? Is that did I hear that? Read that right. That is 100 percent right. So uh, Mark DeCano serves in the Veteran Affairs Committee as the chair of Veteran Affairs in the House, despite having never served a day in uniform. And so I think that's one of the reasons why our VA is a mess. Is he doesn't understand the VA. He's not a part of it. 
Well, I think that's, you know, one of the things you said earlier and just want to echo that is that in so many areas of our uh, government, whether it's city, state or federal, that the people who have the most experience are not the ones that are put in positions of leadership, such as, you know, on the VA, it should be military vets or policing. You have like this police officer who served 25 years in Skid Row, and do you have them on the board consultant is telling them what they should do with the homeless? Oh no, you have these consultants who go to college who've never even dealt with a homeless person in their life, but they're getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to tell you how to solve homelessness, right? So. Do we ever go to those people? No, we don't. Go ahead. <laughs> so this is a great book right here. It's called Firebrand. It's by uh, Matt Gates, And in it, he describes the way that this works. Um, it, if you're very good at fundraising, then when you get to Washington, you're going to get a phone call from either the Republican Party or the Democratic Party saying, hey, send $100,000, $150,000 across the street you know, to the main party, to the Democratic National Party, the Republican National Party. And that donation, the size of the donation that you make directly determines what seats you're going to have, what committees you're going to be able to serve in. So just like you said, they're not looking for the veteran to serve in the, uh, the Veteran Affairs Committee. They're not looking for the police officer. They're not looking for the homeless to help solve the homelessness issue. They are looking for whoever is willing to cough up the most amount of money and get the most amount of money donated because we have a 100% pay-to-play system in our republic, and it's been hijacked by big dollar donors. And that's something, obviously, going in as a congressman, you know, together with other people that you need to try to make a correction on, for sure. Tell us a little bit about endorsements. I know you've been endorsed. I'm just throwing up a couple of pictures. Um, this is just an endorsement for your campaign. Um, another one here, uh, another endorsement from Sheriff uh, uh, Blanco as well. And just tell us a little bit as we get close to ending the program, um, your final thoughts, uh, what people can do and has been doing. I've been throwing up where they can reach your website to be able to read more, to donate um, at, at um, congress.com so that they can go there and, and get more information. But why don't you, uh, David, why don't you wrap us all up? Tell us, uh, you know, moving forward, how people can support you, how people can make a difference in California and the country. So we haven't been seeking a lot of endorsements. I haven't been uh, been begging for a lot of endorsements because, you know, I don't want to give people the power to pull the rug out from underneath me and say, oh, well, now I don't stand with you. I'm going to make it perfectly clear to everybody out there. If you want to stand with me, fantastic. I'd love to get your endorsement. But I'm not going to go around dangling my leg out, begging for endorsements from people because, you know, the my job in the Marine Corps was uh, I was a machine gunner. And movement without suppression is suicide. So in order for me... If we're in order for my team to move, I had to constantly be firing. I had to constantly be on the gun. And that's how I am right now with politics. I'm, I'm going to open up fire in the middle of the field, uh, you know, for as long as possible so that the people around me can move. You know what I mean? And then eventually people will start opening up fire for me so that I can move. And so I, I do have some great endorsements. You know, the Riverside Republican Assembly endorsed me. Uh, Stand Up Riverside, uh, the California Rifle and Pistol Association. Drain the Swamp USA Super PAC, our only Republican uh, city councilman, Chuck Condor, uh, Congressman Calvert, Sheriff Bianco, Senator Mike Morell, uh, Moms for Liberty. Um, so, you know, that's a partial list. I don't have everything right now, but that'll kind of give you an idea of the people that are around me. And uh, I don't care, you know, who you're with or whatnot. I'd love to earn your endorsement because this really is a populist movement. It's about the people. And if you can make a donation, whether it is five bucks, 10 bucks, 20 bucks, or 300 bucks, 
I would be grateful. Um, just go to David Serpa for Congress.com and click on the link. Um, we uh, just want to be able to get some signs. We just want to be able to get some flyers. You know what I mean? Um, and we are not a rich campaign. We're a campaign where, you know, a couple of different times I've had to scrape together change to put into my gas tank. And, you know, I was able to scrape together $18 at one point and change to put my gas tank so I could get to where I need to get. Running for Congress has been financially devastating. I went from running toy drives for the last 10 years for everyone else to my family helping uh, us with Christmas so I could provide a Christmas for my family. So I just want everybody to know I'm not getting rich off of this. There are congressmen that are running right now that are paying them 10000 legally paying themselves $10,000 a month um, out of people's donations in order to run. There's a lot of, we could do a whole other episode about all the crooked things that are going on. But if you could just donate uh, to help keep us going, I would greatly appreciate it. So you can go to David Serpa for congress.com. That's where you get more information and you can donate as well. And David, hey, it's been an honor. It's a pleasure having met you at uh, AmFest in uh, Phoenix and know that we had a, a, a common connection with Pastor Rudy Gonzalez of CERT Ministries. And just, uh, you know, thank you for both, you know, doing what you did in the military and your service there as a businessman, as an entrepreneur, and, and now in public service. And once again, there's a lot of points that we covered today that I just want to echo, you know, that you're willing to talk to anybody, no matter what side they are. And I just, no matter what your position are, whether you're Republican, Democrat, conservative, whatever, have an open mind, have a conversation, meet David and, and uh, listen to what he's saying. And if you agree, then uh, uh, support him. Can I amend that? Don't, do, don't donate a dime to me. Check out CERT Ministries. There's a, a, a great organization, Pastor Rudy. He baptized you. He baptized me. He's the most loving, patient, wonderful man that I've ever met in my life. And he directly combats human trafficking with his family. And uh, they're getting ready to do a big uh, operation out uh, for the Super Bowl. They're going to go out to Vegas and they're going to you know, help free human beings from being sexually trafficked, human trafficked. And so they need a lot of help getting ready for their operation. So instead of donating you know, money to me, uh, I would love it if you would go check out CERT Ministries, check out Pastor Rudy, get in contact with them. If you could link that information because they've got a big operation coming up here uh, in about a month. And that's, thank you so much for putting that up. That's where I want you to donate um, because th those people are doing so much with so little and uh, they're, they're showing up. Well, you know, it's very uh, uh, generous and big-hearted of you because they are amazing. I I'm going to have a show on next, the 21st, with Pastor Rudy and what they're doing for the Super Bowl um, operation, rescue of, of children uh, from uh, sex traffickers. So, once again, that's another great thing to do, but, you know, find it in your heart to do a donation to both. Um, if, if you support them, support them. And if you can uh, support David and you, you know, feel that he's running to uh, make a difference in California, then support him as well and make a donation to, to David as well. Love Thank you, my you. brother. I appreciate you. Thank you. Uh, it's an honor to have met you, and I wish you the best with your campaign, and, and we'll be in, uh, definitely in touch. Take care of yourself, brother. Thanks, Charles.